Today we are starting a series through the book of Mark. And so I get to do the overview message and then over the coming weeks and, and even months, um, other, we, we will be trading off and, and preaching through different specific passages. But today is just an overview, so I don't really have a, um, a specific scripture that we'll be preaching on today. But if you want to go ahead and open up your, your, books, uh, your Bibles to the book of Mark, um, we can, uh, you can follow along as I go through, um, through the sermon today. So with that being said, let me just pray for us, and then um, I'll go ahead and just get started right into um, the message. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for another opportunity to come and share your word, to come and um, preach about uh, this, this gospel. And, um, and Lord, we're just so incredibly grateful for the scripture and uh, that you have recorded for us in your book um, what it is that you would have us to know. Lord, I pray for wisdom this morning. I pray that you would help it to be uh, your words, not mine. In, uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So this is a really exciting for me. Um, I, I really, really enjoy, my, me personally, really enjoy um, studying through entire books of the Bible. Um, to understand, for me, I, I'm a type of person that likes to have a, a full understanding of the whole story rather than going through, through bits and pieces. Um, and, and so we, um, uh, I'm just really, like I said, excited to start us off into this, uh, this series over the coming months. Um, one of the things that I, the, the reason that I, one of the reasons I really love the Bible is, um, like I was saying in, in, when I was praying, that this is um, God's word directly to us. And so God is not some God who is far off, um, who is um, this, this sort of floating spirit that, that doesn't communicate with us and, and isn't clear with us. Um, he, he is very clear. He chose of all things um, to have a book written for us so that we can understand more about him and what he would have us to do. In fact, I was having a conversation with a relative of mine, and, and that was the way that he described God was this God that is, that is um, I, I don't even really know what word to use, just, just a God that is, that is um, like a cloud almost, that, that speaks through um, impressions um, to you. And it's this, this real super spiritual, um, new agey kind of thing. And um, you know, my, my question was, if, if God, the, the Bible says that, that for, for us, for Christians, we are like God's children, or we are God's children, his adopted children. And so why would a father um, make things so confusing and, and so up in the air for his children? Um, wouldn't, wouldn't, a, wouldn't a good father want his children to understand exactly what it takes to have a relationship with him and exactly what his expectations are? And so to me, that's what the Bible is, is it's our Father giving us very clearly, I want to have a relationship with you. Here is how. Um, and, and so that's uh, the, the number one reason why we preach through whole books of the Bible is so that we can understand the whole counsel of God and know everything that God has to say, not just bits and pieces. Um, another reason why we preach through whole books of the Bible is that, frankly, none of us are smart enough to, to be able to figure out exactly what it is that all of you need to hear. In fact, I, I'm, you know, as, as you all know, I'm taking turns with other people who are coming and, and sharing messages to you. I, I know um, some of your names, but I don't know all of you very well. 
And so for me to try to guess what it is that you need to hear or try to rely on some sort of impression in my mind about what the sermon should be or the topic should be, um, I, just, I just don't trust myself enough to be able to do that. Um, and and the, the danger is that what, what, it, what invariably would end up happening is, is that I would end up saying things that maybe I thought you wanted to hear rather than things that you need to hear. And so that would be um, uh, even worse would be um, to try to preach in such a way to make sure that the seats are filled up rather than to be honest and to actually preach through what, what God has to say. Not to say that we don't want full seats, but uh, we don't want full seats at the expense of the Word of God. So in other words, confidence is not in ourselves, but in the power of the Word of God. Um, not because the Bible is just a handy book of moral lessons like a magic eight ball. Um, I, I remember when I was a kid, and I don't know if anybody else did this, maybe I'm weird, but when I was a kid, I, I would op- I would like... God, what, you know, what should I do in this situation? And then like flip open the Bible and put my finger and like try to treat it like it's some sort of a, a magic talisman that I can use to, to give me secret answers to the questions that I have. Um, that, 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 of course, is not, not, um, the re- not what, this, what this book is. Um, in fact, the, the Bible itself is very clear that the Bible is more than just a book. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this book that we call the Bible contains the very character and nature of God who wrote the Bible through men. So the God who created me and created all of you from before the foundations of the world, God knew us, wrote this book for us, and revealed His Son Jesus through this book. So not only is this book inspired by the Holy Spirit, but this book is all, we are also, as Christians, if we are Christians, we have the Holy Spirit in us, helping us to rightly interpret and rightly divide the Scriptures as well. So what ends up happening is the more we study God's Word, the more we start to realize we're, we're not just reading this book. This book is also reading us. And it starts to tell us and we start to realize and and learn deep truths from the Word as we're studying it and as part of our daily study. And we're we're learning more and more about ourselves and the book is speaking to us. The Word of God is powerful and life-changing and it can do deep and long-lasting change. That no amount of of my motivational speaking or good advice or self-help books can give you. This isn't to say that we can't use the Bible as a guide to help us in our lives. Um, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible itself and throughout the Scriptures, we see God's intention to record His words into a book. Moses was instructed by God, write down these words into a book. The prophets spoke the word. They preached, um, they preached the, old, the, the scriptures, and they um, were speaking and, and exposing and expositing scripture the way we do today. The New Testament writers also quote the word of God throughout, and they, as they were led by the Spirit. Um, but, but the most powerful case for the unending relevance of scripture and the importance of preaching through it um, expositionally, verse by verse, book by book, through the Scripture, is that Jesus Himself says that He only speaks what the Father tells Him to say. He quotes from the Old Testament Scriptures throughout His ministry. 
So the third reason why we preach through whole books of the Bible and we encourage people to study Scripture every day on your own is because our lives are lives of warfare. And we desire for you to be fully equipped and prepared. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So if you really want to be equipped for this life of warfare, you can't just attend church on Sunday mornings for a couple hours and expect to be victorious in battle. I talk about my military background a lot, um, but I thought that this would be another good opportunity to use another analogy. Um, I, as, as, as some of you know, I was in the Marine Corps. I was an infantry um, uh, officer. I had infantry Marines who, um, who I was responsible for and that we, we went into combat together. Um, but, but you may not know what a, a young Marine goes through before they're allowed to step into combat. It isn't, it isn't that they go sign up at the recruiting office, get their heads shaved, and get shipped over to Afghanistan or Iraq. It isn't how it works. So we start off with 13 weeks of boot camp. So the boot camp is where they do get their hair cut. They all look alike. They're all, they have their, the, the boot camp is designed to, to break down all of the old stuff that, that, that people bring with them into boot camp and build them up into Marines. Um, you could, you could say that they're being born again into new people. After they go through 13 weeks of boot camp, from there, young Marines are shipped off, depending on if they're infantry Marines, they go to the School of Infantry. And I don't remember how long the School of Infantry is, but the point of the School of Infantry is to learn specialized infantry tactics. And if those Marines actually have a specialization, like maybe they're a machine gunner or they might be a mortarman or whatever it is, they go and they learn specific skills related to machine guns and machine gun gunnery. And then once they're done with that, only then do they go out to what we call the Fleet Marine Force, which is where I would get them. So they would show up to me as, as privates first class or lance corporals if they did really, really well, and, and, but they're still not ready. At that point, now we have to take them and train them on how does, okay, so now you know all of the basics, but now what about us? What about our mission? So now us as, a, as a, uh, an infantry battalion would have a specific mission, or maybe even our company would have a specific mission. And at that point, now they start getting trained on that specific mission procedures and tactics for that. And then um, how often do you think we did that? Do you think we did that two hours a week? We spent 12 hours a day, five days a week, if not more, training these Marines. And we would go out and we would do more exercises out in the field, teaching them everything that they needed to do. The intention was for that all of the basic things that they would need to have, that when combat begins, everything becomes muscle memory and it's an immediate response and there's no need to think I don't have to pull out my book and flip and find the answer I already know the answers I'm ready and I'm prepared and that was the intention and we um, took it very seriously that if they were not prepared in that way um, that that would have been a failure on us as leaders to prepare them so if you really want to be victorious in the Christian battle and have Jesus say well done good and faithful servant on that day then you have to immerse yourself daily in this book. Read it, study it, meditate on it, drill over and over again until it becomes muscle memory. If you don't already do this, write notes in your Bible. It's okay, it's not a sin. If you run out of room, start a notebook and start keeping track of where, you, if, you, if you have a, you've run out of room in your Bible, I have, there's certain passages where there's just so much you can write that maybe you run out of room and so you start a notebook and you fill in there. 
Um, I was listening to a, a John Piper podcast, and he was talking about, um, he called them sermon gardens, is what he called them, these notebooks that he just filled up with, with um, notes from the text. The great thing and the other amazing thing about this book not being just a book, being the living Word of God and having the character of God within it, is that there's no way you can ever get done studying it. So even when we die and when we've been gone and in God's presence for a million years, we still will have not scratched the surface of Him because He is infinite. And the truths that are in His Word are also infinite. Um, So it's not this thing where you say, yes, as a Christian, I've read through the Bible, check. I have checked the Bible reading box. That's, that's not the way this works. Ongoing study of this scripture, and every time you read through it, you'll find new truths that you didn't see before. Like I was saying earlier, the Bible will start to read you. Another one of the amazing things about Christianity, and I know I talk a lot about the things that, why we can trust and have faith and believe that Christianity is true, is that we're one of the only religions that actually encourages you to read our holy book. In many other religions, the, the, the books aren't even written in a language that people can understand. And in fact, um, up until really recently, the Bible itself was not written in languages that people could understand. And a lot of people died and bled um, so that we could have this book in our language and in our native language. And there's still many people who the Bible is not in their language. Um, but we're the only ones who encourage you, don't take my word for it. I'm not an expert up here. If I'm saying stuff up here and it doesn't sound right to you, don't take my word for it. Go and look in this book and find the answer for yourself. I'm not infallible. Everyone else in the world wants you to just take their word for it. In fact, it was, it was really funny. I, I saw a, um, uh, an article from the New York Times about coronavirus, and this was the headline. The solution isn't to try to think more carefully. It's to trust the experts. That was the headline for this article. I don't I didn't read the article. I just thought the headline was extremely ironic. Um, So I'm telling you the opposite. I'm not an expert, and don't take my word for it. If I say something that doesn't sound right, ask your leaders within the church. Read the book for yourself. So now that we, I thought that it was important to start off um, this, this message talking about why we preach through whole books of the Bible. And since we're going to be doing that for the next several months, um, why do we do that and what is the reason why? So I'm going to start off now and actually get into uh, the book of Mark at this point and talk a little bit more about um, some of the structure of the book and, and some, things that, 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 um, some facts about the book and where it came from and who wrote it. Um, and then we'll actually do an overview uh, of the book as well. So so first and foremost, what type of literature is the book of Mark? The book of Mark is a type of literature called the Gospels. Literally means the good news. There are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all unique um, in in the way that they're written. Um, And and, uh, it is is called narrative literature is what the Gospels are, which, which means it just simply tells a story. It's different from other books in the Bible like the epistles, which are also, um, the the word epistle means letter. And so the letters that were written by Peter and and Paul and and some others that wrote letters in the New Testament, um, or prophetic literature in the Old Testament like Isaiah or Ezekiel, um, these these books that are messages and sermons to groups of people at certain times that included, generally included prophecy. And then there's also in the Old Testament wisdom literature and poetry. That would be like Psalms and Proverbs. The Gospels specifically tell the story of the life and ministry of Jesus. 
There are three Gospels which are called the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the Synoptic Gospels because they're very similar in the way they tell the story. Synoptic literally means together sight. So these three books tell the story of Jesus in a similar view. John is different and has a very different perspective on the life and ministry of Jesus. And most of the material in John is very unique and not recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. In fact, 90% of Mark is also recorded in Matthew, and 50% of Mark is recorded in Luke. So then you might ask yourself, well, then why do, why do we need Mark if it's all covered in these other books? What is the point of, of the book of Mark, and why are we preaching through that book? Um, in fact, you wouldn't be um, odd for having that feeling. That was the feeling of the church in general um, up until the 1800s when uh, new scholarly research determined that the book of Mark was actually the first gospel that was ever written. So the material that's in Matthew and Luke comes from what is in the book of Mark as opposed to it being the other way. And I would suggest that although much of the content of Mark is covered in Matthew and Luke, Mark offers a very unique perspective and a very unique style. Um, and, and I'm hopeful at the end of this message you'll understand uh, what I mean. All of the Gospels have their own particular purposes in mind. Um, and none of the Gospels have the purpose of recording everything Jesus did. In fact, John himself in John chapter 21 verse 25 says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. One of the things that you may have heard or that you may have even seen in your own study is that there are some differences in the Gospels. Why are there differences in the different accounts? Um, if, 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 these, if the people who wrote these books were all present, then how come they don't always match up 100%? Like the feeding of the 5,000. It's an event that is recorded in all four Gospels, and yet the accounts are all slightly different. So how do we account for that? Cold Case Homicide Investigator Jim Wallace wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity, um, which is a book that explains... Um, these, these claims of the Gospels and looks at it from as a forensic investigator and essentially his intention of writing the book was can you trust the Gospel, can you trust the Gospels and the, the eyewitness testimony that comes from the Gospels. And he specifically addresses, among other things, this question, why are there differences in witness testimony? And he explains and tells a story about a robbery that occurred. So there's a robbery that he investigated that occurred at a, I don't know where, a convenience store, I'm, I'm guessing. And in that convenience store, there were several witnesses. One of the witnesses described the robber as a young man with no gun who seemed to be generally kind of polite while he was doing the robbery. The other person described the robber as an older person with a gun and an extremely menacing appearance to him. So how can both of those, and both of those people were present and were there, and they were both talking about an event that actually occurred, but it sounds like their testimony is contradictory. How could it be contradictory? Well, the difference is, is that once um, Jim started in, in interviewing these people and realized a little bit more about them, then he started to understand why there were differences. For one thing, the witness who said that the, um, that the robber was younger was older than the robber. And was, it was also standing behind him, which is why she couldn't see the gun that he had. And she could only hear his voice. And his voice was talking very calmly and quietly as he was asking for the money or whatever, whatever it was that he was saying. The other person was actually standing behind the counter next to the cashier who was the, uh, was, and was a friend of the cashier who was working. Saw the gun, saw the menacing face, and the person was actually younger than the robber. 
So both telling the exact same story, both completely true accounts, and yet different because of their perspective. A little bit of an extreme example, but just to put out into some perspective so we can understand why there may be differences in what we're seeing within the Gospels. It's also very clear, it's also very important to be clear that there are no contradictions among the Gospels as well. So where was the Gospel of Mark written and when? Bless you. So as I said before, the Gospel of Mark is believed to be the first Gospel that was ever written. Um, it is written in a much more common, everyday Greek style as opposed to the higher literary styles of Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke, excuse me. Um, and it does not, and, and as the other Gospels, also does not um, identify who the author is. It doesn't say in the book of Mark that this was written by Mark. Um, but there was a man named Papias, who was the Bishop of Hierapolis in Asia Minor, who wrote in some documentation that he was writing about, specifically about the Gospels and their authorship, and, and he recorded that the, um, the Mark that wrote, that it, was, that it was Peter speaking to an interpreter named Mark, John Mark specifically, who, 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 um, who wrote this book. So, so this, is, this is technically the Gospel of Peter as recorded by John Mark. And what we know about John Mark, if you can see through most in, in the New Testament, a lot of, uh, he's recorded a lot of him is in the book of Acts. Um, it, was, it was noted that in his house, the early church gathered in Jerusalem um, and apparently was also the site of the Last Supper. You can read about that in the book of Acts. He accompanied Barnabas and Saul as an assistant on their first missionary journey. Um, for some reason, he quit the missionary journey with uh, Paul and, um, uh, and Barnabas in, at Perga. And then that desertion caused a rift between Paul and Barnabas. Um, and then you don't hear anything about John Mark again until scattered references show him reconciled to Paul. And then there's a final reference in the New Testament in 1 Peter 5.13 that shows him laboring with Peter in Rome. Now, outside of the Bible, according to tradition, Mark evangelized in Egypt and there established churches, eventually becoming the first bishop of Alexandria. As with the authorship, it isn't clearly defined in the gospel when it was written. Um, the only evidence that exists is from similar external sources and clues within the text itself. Um, early church fathers such as Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen disagree on exactly when Mark was written, but seems to suggest that it was written either very close to the end or shortly after the end of Peter's life. Early church tradition is unanimous about Peter and his death, and um, he died during the latter years of Nero's reign, when Nero reigned from 54 to 68 AD. And so that places the authorship of the book of Mark in the mid to late 60s of the first century. As I was saying before, it's very clear that the book of Mark is written to a very specific audience and for the very specific intention, um, which, which in this case, he is portraying the person and uh, mission of Jesus for Roman Christians, most likely Gentiles, who are undergoing persecution under Nero. You can see this because throughout the book of Mark, Mark quotes relatively infrequently from the Old Testament. He explains Jewish customs unfamiliar to his readers, he translates Aramaic and Hebrew phrases by their Greek equivalents, and he incorporates a number of Latinisms by transliterating familiar Latin expressions into Greek characters. Finally, Mark presents Rome in a neutral and sometimes favorable light. 
So all of these things together indicate that this primary frame of reference for the readers of this book were from the Roman Empire, native language, evidently Latin, and, um, and for whom the land and Jewish, Jewish ethos of Jesus would have been very unfamiliar. So now talking a little bit about some of the style and more of the, the things that make the, the Gospel of Mark unique from the others. So despite the fact that until recently Mark was looked down upon compared to the other Gospels as lacking in literary style, in reality Mark's Gospel does an incredible job of describing Jesus as one who challenges preconceived notions and stereotypes. Mark uses something called irony throughout the Gospel to reinforce this, and I'll get through several examples of that when I go through the overview of the book. Um, but an example would be that religious leaders are constantly portrayed as at odds with Jesus, but then some unknown Gentile woman would be exalted for her, her faith. So as we go through the, the narrative, we'll see uh, other ironic situations that occur throughout the book. And all of this is to reinforce Mark's message that Jesus is not who anyone expected, but is still, in fact, the promised Messiah. So now that we understand a little bit about the structure and the style of the book of Mark, let's actually take a look at an overview of a high level of the Gospel of Mark. So Mark portrays Jesus as a man of action throughout his Gospel. He doesn't tell you what you should think about Jesus. He just tells you what Jesus does and then describes how people are responding to Jesus. The book of Mark is broken up into three sections. The first section covers chapters 1 through 8 and takes place in Galilee. And during that section, it shows how everyone is shocked by Jesus and are wondering who he is. The middle section covers also chapters 8 but through 10 and shows Jesus on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem and shows the disciples and their struggle with understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. The third section covers chapters 11 through 16 and takes place in Jerusalem and shows the surprising way that Jesus becomes the Messianic King. So let's start with section number one. Section number one begins with the following quote from the Old Testament. And you can read it right there in Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one, verses two and three. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And when, when Isaiah is talking about, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, he's talking about the Lord, talking about God. So what Mark is saying here is Mark is setting this up and is saying, okay, the, the promised king is coming. He is as heralded by um, the, 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 the uh, prophecy in the Old Testament. So then who is the herald? Well, then Mark immediately introduces John the Baptist and, and proclaims John the Baptist is that messenger. He is the voice crying in the wilderness. So now Mark has set this up to say, okay, so here's John the Baptist. He is proclaiming the way of the Lord. So the next person that comes should be the Lord, should be God at that point. And then shockingly, as no one would have expected, he now introduces Jesus at this point. After Jesus' baptism in Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is showing people how God's promise to restore His reign over the world is being fulfilled through Himself. At this point, you start to read a bunch of Jesus' miracles as you start reading through the book of Mark. You see Jesus casting out demons, healing large groups of people, cleansing lepers. He even heals a paralytic man. Most importantly, Jesus does something that only God has the right to do. So looking at Mark chapter 2, 
verses 3 and 5. This is the story of the paralytic man. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus has forgiven the sins of the paralytic man. And it's important to understand how shocking this would have been to first century Jews. Only God can forgive sins. So how is it that Jesus, this man, can do that? And you can see multiple different reactions. The scribes are outraged, calling Jesus a blasphemer. But then an interesting, and, it's, and one of, the, one of the, the, the parts of irony is that then Jesus goes, Mark goes out of his way to show Jesus then calls um, Levi, a tax collector, to be one of his followers, and Levi immediately follows him. So here you have the scribes and the religious leaders rejecting Jesus, calling him a blasphemer, but Levi the wicked tax collector hated by the Jews immediately steps up to follow Jesus as Jesus commanded him. Jesus is not unaware of these varying responses. And he begins now in chapter 4 to tell a collection of parables. These parables are to show the mysterious and unexpected nature of the kingdom. And then after telling the parables, Jesus goes and explains the reason why he speaks in parables. In verses 10 and 12 of chapter 4. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and now he quotes uh, an Old Testament prophecy. So that they may indeed see but not perceive. And may indeed hear but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. The prophecy that he's quoting comes from Isaiah chapter 6. And it's saying in that prophecy that there would be some people who would not be able to understand God's message. In fact, in Mark chapter 8, even though Jesus has been working miracles for all his ministry, up to this point, the Pharisees come to him and demand a sign. Jesus responds that they will not receive any such sign. Even Jesus' disciples themselves are struggling to understand and then that leads into the next section, section number two. This begins with a very important conversation between Jesus and his disciples. If you flip over to chapter 8, um, we'll be uh, starting in verse 27. We can read this conversation. So uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So here is another one of those, the, the, the ironies that, I, that, that, that Mark uses throughout the book um, is, is the way that Peter says, well, You are the Christ, but then rebukes Jesus when Jesus tells him what's going to happen. 
So do you really believe that Jesus is the Christ? If so, then why are you rebuking him when he's telling you what's going to happen in the future? And again, this is another one of those things that I mentioned last week in my last sermon. Another one of those, those things that, that, that confirms the truthfulness of the Bible. Remember, the Gospel of Mark is most likely the Gospel of Peter being translated by Mark. So why in the world would Peter want to include this story that makes Peter look so terrible in this story, and yet he wanted to include it in the Gospel? The only explanation for that is that it's the truth. And he wanted to include it because he knew that it was important. So this story of Jesus and Peter shows that even Peter is still struggling with his expectations relating to the coming Messiah. Peter has his own ideas, his preconceived notions about who the Messiah should be. Peter wants him to be a conquering king, as not just Peter, many others wanted Jesus to be a conquering king who with a sword would overthrow the Roman Empire and set Israel back up um, as a powerful nation. But Jesus was telling them, I'm the suffering servant, prophesied in Isaiah 53. And then Jesus goes on to say even more challenging things. That if you want to be my disciple, Jesus says, then you need to pick up your cross and follow me. This isn't, this isn't going to be a life of, of honor in this life. This is a life of dying to yourself. After this first conversation with the disciples, um, Jesus, something amazing happens. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to a high mountain, and this is where the transfiguration occurs. The transfiguration is where Jesus is literally transformed before the eyes of um, Peter, James, and John, and, and he um, glows with, with heavenly glory. The really cool thing about this story is that it harkens back to several Old Testament stories. The story of Moses, who goes up to the mountain. The glory of God descends on the mountain like a cloud, and, and, and Moses sees the glory of, is able to see the glory of God. And then Elijah, who also goes up to the mountain, and the glory of God comes to Elijah. So what Mark is really saying here is he's making an extraordinary claim. These other people who went up to the mountain, they got to see the glory of God. Well, this man who goes up to the mountain actually takes on the glory of God. So what Mark is saying is that Jesus himself is the physical embodiment of the glory of God. God himself and then contrary to all of their expectations, God himself, the glorious creator of all the universe, Jesus is telling them, I'm going to suffer and die. The disciples just can't get it. They're confused and they're scared. And Jesus goes on again to tell them actually two more times in Mark chapter 9 and chapter 10 that he will die, he will suffer and die and be raised again. But even after that, having been told three times, they're still not understanding in fact, right after Jesus um, foretells his death for the third time, James and John ask Jesus to give them special places of honor at his right hand. And then Jesus um, has this response in chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus again shatters all expectations and preconceived notions 
by saying that to be great in the kingdom of God means to be a servant, and that he would be the ultimate servant by giving his life so everyone else could be saved. This brings us to section 3, the final section of Mark's gospel, How Jesus Becomes King. This section begins with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So then after Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he goes and begins to exert his authority throughout the city. The first thing he does is goes to the temple. He clears out all of the corrupt money changers. And then for the next week, he's debating and condemning Israel's leaders. This makes them so angry that they set in motion plans to have him killed. Even after asserting this royal authority within, the, within um, Jerusalem, he shatters expectations again when in chapter 13 he foretells the destruction of the temple and the persecution of his followers. In chapter 14, Jesus celebrates the Last Supper which would have been a traditional Jewish Passover meal. This Jewish Passover meal is filled with symbolism, describing Israel's protection from God's wrath and their liberation from slavery by the death of the Passover lamb. But when Jesus celebrates this meal with his disciples, he gives new meaning to the symbolism in the Passover meal. Now, instead of an imperfect and temporary liberation from physical slavery that the Israelites received, um, from the death of the Passover lamb, Jesus now promises a perfect and permanent liberation from sin and death itself through the death of the Messiah. And in fact, today we will partake in this Last Supper together, the communion together, where we will see again the symbolism presented in the, in the communion meal. After this Last Supper, Jesus is arrested and condemned to death. We can see again here several parallels back to um, the transfiguration and even to the beginning of the, the book of Mark itself. Um, Jesus is led up onto a hill. But this time, instead of the glory of God descending and the heavens opening as the way that they did when Jesus was baptized, or the glory of God descending as it did when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, now um, darkness descends on the earth. Instead of God himself speaking, Jesus cries out to God. This is another amazing irony at this point in the story. As Jesus, God himself, hangs on the cross, there's only one person who says, this man must have been the Son of God. And that was the Roman centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion. So Jesus himself had earlier asked God to forgive the Roman soldiers because they didn't know what they were doing. But now, one of those same previously ignorant soldiers receives a revelation from God that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. Again, if this was not true, this would never have been included. Why would Peter, a Jew, ever include a story that makes a Roman soldier look so good in the story? In fact, this Roman soldier is the first one in the whole of Mark's gospel who truly understands the truth. If Peter had been writing this for himself and had made up the whole story, then Peter would have been the one. Peter would have been the one to stand and proclaim that Jesus was the Son of God. Finally, Mark's gospel concludes with Jesus' death and burial. And then, on the first day of the week, two women go to the tomb and discover that it's empty. 
There they find an angel who informs them that Jesus has risen from the dead and to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is alive and will meet them in Galilee. How do they respond? In chapter 16, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And this is how the gospel ends. Now you might notice in your Bible there's actually a few more verses, starting from verse 9 and going through verse 20. Those verses were not actually in the original manuscripts. It isn't to say that those verses aren't true, but... Um, I believe that Mark intended to end his gospel this way, with this cliffhanger, where, where they run away in fear at the empty tomb. Because to me, what this does is conveys this, the consistent message that Mark has been conveying throughout the rest of the book, is that people don't really understand what it, who, who Jesus was saying that he was. And, and they would say that they did, but then their actions would indicate that they didn't actually believe it. So Mark's message again is Jesus is not who everyone expected. Even now, after the fulfillment of everything that he had said, the women were still shocked and afraid, just as so many people were throughout the entire book. The crucified and risen Jesus is the Messiah, just as he said he would be over and over again throughout the entire book. So I think the ending is supposed to make us uncomfortable and to ask ourselves um, the following two questions. And those are my two application points for today. Two questions. Two things for us to do. Number one, we need to compare what we think to what the Bible actually teaches. We might be highly educated. We may have grown up in church. And, and, and as us here in America, we have unprecedented access, not only to the Scripture in multiple translations, but thousands of years, literally 2,000 years, geniuses and heroes and titans of the faith have been, uh, have been thinking through and discussing and debating some of the tough theological issues that are in the Bible. And we have access to the results of all of that. But does what we think match what the Scriptures actually teach? What do we think we know about God? Is God like the, uh, one of my relatives that I was speaking to, simply a, a benevolent force that, that floats around in space somewhere, um, just distant and far away? Is God love, but not also just? Does He want us to live our best life now through material blessing, health, and wealth? Do we believe that that is what love is, someone who gives us things we want? What do we believe about salvation? Does growing up in church make you a Christian? Does having Christian parents make you a Christian? Do all good people go to heaven? Is it possible to be a Christian and yet still enslaved to sin with no desire or power to overcome? Maybe we don't even know what we believe compared to what the Bible teaches because we don't think we need to be reading our Bibles. And this is exactly what the devil wants. He is a master of telling lies that are almost right. He's a master of convincing people that it's legalism to have a disciplined life of Bible study because he doesn't want us to know the truth. These lies pervade through our culture and are destroying the church. Maybe you're saying to yourself, no, I don't believe those things. Well, then that leads me to my next point. Consider how your actions match what you claim to believe. The religious leaders claimed to believe the scriptures. The Pharisees would have been, had much of the scripture memorized. 
And yet they expected the Messiah to be a conquering king, overthrowing the Roman Empire. The disciples claimed to believe Jesus himself, yet time and time again misunderstood the upside-down kingdom of God, even running away in fear when the tomb was empty. If they had really believed what Jesus said, then why did they run away in fear when the tomb was empty? He told them he would rise again. The actions of the religious leaders and the disciples prove what was really in their hearts, what they truly believed. So all of us, me included, need to continually check our integrity. Do we claim to believe that God is good and in control, yet we obsess over our material possessions and stress out if we can't control every part of our lives? Do we claim to believe that God is just, yet secretly question the existence of hell and judgment? Do we claim to believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God himself, yet we never read it or study it? Do we claim to want to have a closer walk with God, yet never make time to pray? Do we claim to value the advance of the kingdom of God, but our pocketbooks say otherwise? Being a Christian is not about what you say you believe, but about what you actually believe. And I guarantee that there is no disconnect between what we truly believe and what we do. What is in our hearts will come out in our actions. Just like the women at the empty tomb who ran away in fear, they didn't really believe he would rise again. It's as simple as that. So are we, like so many cultural Christians of today, and like so many of the people in the book of Mark, all talk? If this is you, then Mark is telling you, God may not be what you've always been told. He may not be what you're expecting. He's so much more. He is the infinite, eternal king of the universe who came down from his throne to die so that you might have life and have it in abundance. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sacrificed your own son for us. Thank you that you are not far off. Thank you that you have communicated to us through your word. And you want us to know you. You are calling to us. Father, I pray that if there is someone here today who is thinking to themselves, my actions don't really match what I believe, what I say or what I think I believe, or what I think I believe doesn't match what the Scripture teaches. Lord, I pray that that, that person would, um, that you would soften their hearts and have the humility to seek out some of the leaders in this church. Have conversations with them about, about the questions, the tough questions that they have. Encourage them, Lord. Give them, give them the desire to read this word and find the answers to the questions that they seek. Ultimately, Father, I just pray for the, um, the advance and the growth of your true church. Thank you for this body. In Jesus' name, amen.